I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Good day, good people. My name is Brad King, and you are listening to the Downtown Writer's Jam Podcast, which is part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. Max the dog and I are coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker on this beautiful spring day. We are recording this as the Cincinnati Reds are in town here in Pittsburgh, which is the most exciting time for me. Because while I love baseball, I am from Cincinnati. Uh, I normally have to wear Pirates gear, and tonight I get to pull out all of my Reds gear, um, which I'm sure will be fantastic for me. Don't know how it's going to be for the people in Pittsburgh. I am excited today. We are continuing this Appalachia theme that we've had on the main program for the last few weeks. And we have another person from Pittsburgh, Margot Orlando Littell, who is the author of The Distance from Farpoint, is here today. Her book is out right now. Uh, she's the author of two books, The Distance from Farpoint and Each Vagabond by Name. Both were published by the University of New Orleans Press and are set in northern Appalachia. I think you can understand why I'm excited to have her on the program. Her first book, Each Vagabond by Name, won the University of New Orleans Publishing Lab Prize and Ippy Award Gold Medal for Mid-Atlantic Fiction and was named one of 15 great Appalachian novels by Bustle. After receiving her MFA from Columbia and spending many years in Brooklyn and New Jersey, she just moved back to Pittsburgh with her family. We obviously had a discussion about buying a house here because we both did it around the same time. I'm very excited for you to hear this interview. She's great, fantastic. I always love talking Appalachia. But before we get to all of that, a little bit of business to handle. As you know, the jam is now out every Wednesday. Two things you can do to help us spread the word. Tell your friends about us. Leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also pop over to the Facebook page. Leave us a review there. 
or head to thewritersjam.com and leave us a testimonial through the contact page. While you're at the website, three or four things you can do. You can check out the new video podcast series we have with authors we've had on the program before, new authors that have books coming out. They come out sporadically, generally Mondays and or Fridays. Check out the website. You'll always see it there. The audio version is always available wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to buy a book of anybody who's been on the show? Click on our bookshop link. Looking for a book to read? We have a book review section. We are posting the reviews of people we've had on the program reading their books as fast as we can. Sign up for our monthly newsletter. You get book recommendations, reviews, podcast highlights, happenings around the web. That shit just shows up in your email box. You don't even have to go looking. And the last thing you can do, you can support the entire Solid Listen network. Click on the Patreon button for just a couple bucks a month. Commercial-free episodes, happy hours, bonus content, all that good stuff. Go get signed up for that right now. So, I'm vaxxed up. I hope you are vaxxed up as well, but I'm fully vaxxed, done all that stuff, and was in Asheville, North Carolina this last weekend. I love Asheville. So, if you listen to the program, you know, like, I lived in Austin back in the 90s. Um, When I worked at Wired, I spent a lot of time up in Portland. And there was just this sort of uh, weird vibe, right? And so the first time I went to Asheville, I was like, oh, shit, like, this reminds me of those places. It's hard to describe if you haven't been there, but, you know, it's outdoorsy. Like, it's artistic, lots of um, artisanal stuff, uh, people that do crafts and work with their hands and farms. uh, Lots of, you know, like, every restaurant has, like, farm-to-table food very liberal, like, there's just this sort of, this sort of Austin, Portland, Asheville, like, there was just a vibe in between those places, so I have been in a few years, and I was very excited to go down, it's different, it's a little bit like what happened to Austin, you know, when I was there in the, in, in the mid-90s, it was sort of the beginning of this boom, and now when I go back, like, the place is just gigantic, but there is still that vibe to it, that, uh, I don't know, that I just get. Like, it's just, it's a cool vibe that I sort of understand and feel very comfortable in. And I was there with my girlfriend, and she is beginning to experience this thing that happens. So I have this superpower. And the superpower makes me no money. It it saves nobody. It is not helpful to anybody, but it makes for interesting travels. And pretty much whenever I go somewhere, it's I meet people who I have some weird connection with. And in two days in Asheville, hadn't been there in 15 years, Eight hours from where I live. Uh, the first night, uh, I meet somebody who's from the west side of Cincinnati. I'm wearing a WKRP uh, turkey drop T-shirt. She asks if I'm from Cincinnati. Yeah, I'm from Cincinnati. Where are you from? West side. Well, my mom grew up on the west side. The west side is the Appalachian part of Cincinnati. My mom grew up over there. I taught at Western High School. So we're literally talking about streets in Cincinnati, you know, places that we w- ran around. And my girlfriend is like, this is crazy. Because when we had been in Louisville, uh, the person that gave us the tour at the Louisville Slugger Factory had worked with my graduate mentor, Bill Drummond, who I talk about on this program all the time. And she was like, what are the odds of that? And I told her then, like, this is going to happen a lot. So then we're in this uh, artisan space, and I'm wearing a Loveland Frogman shirt. Loving Frogman is like a you know one of the urban legends in my little town that I talk about all the time. And this guy comes running across the room. Are you from Loveland? And my girlfriend looks at me and just walks away. Like, just, like what is happening? 
He grew up in Fairfield, which is right around the corner from where I grew up. He was a baseball player, so we're sort of talking about that stuff. And she was like, this is ridiculous. Then we go to the Highland Brewing Company at the uh, recommendation of Dr. Hillary Green, who's been on the program before. And she was like, you got to go to this place. It's great. So we go. I'm wearing a Carnegie Mellon mask. The, it's an outdoor bar. Every place we went was outdoor. They have everything circled off so you know, you know, you can, you're sitting 10 feet from people out on this grass. And this guy has a dog. You know, he's in his 70s. Guy's got his dog. Dog's jumping on me. Guy's making fun of Carnegie Mellon. And I'm, you know, shooting the shit, whatever. Old guy, like, that's what we do. So we sit down in the grove over at a picnic table. My girlfriend's like, I really, I want to pet that dog. And I'm like, well, go pet the dog. So she goes over. She's not coming back. And I'm like playing on my phone and I look up and she waves me over. So I go over and I shit you not. There's four old guys with this dog, Clark. Uh, and it turns out that the guy, the reason she called me over was because the guy with the dog, um, his best friend, uh, his son worked at Carnegie Mellon. His son is my boss. To which my girlfriend just like threw her hands up and was like, what are the odds? And then to top it off, the, his friend, the guy who he's with, is an athletic director and baseball coach, uh, you know, worked all through Western Pennsylvania. So I asked him if he knew my high school baseball coach, Dave Evans. And he's like, yeah, absolutely. Like, so she literally got up and just walked away again and was like, four times in 24 hours, you run into four people eight hours away. Uh, how in the hell does that happen? And I told her, there is this sort of like, I feel like people sort of end up hanging out in the same kinds of places, right? So like, obviously, people of you know who have similar mindsets will end up in the same kinds of places, whether it's Portland or Austin or Asheville or Pittsburgh, New York, like you just, people with those sensibilities end up. But I also, and this may seem hard to believe since you are listening to a podcast where I literally sit in the library and talk to a computer, I like to talk to people. I like to find out what their stories are. And you find out that the world is a very, very small place. If you talk to people, the world is a very, very small place. And it is not hard to find connections with people. So, as I told her, like, it only seems like a superpower because I don't think a lot of people do that, where they just sort of randomly talk to everybody. But when you do and begin to sort of probe about who people are and where they're from and things like that, you begin to find out, there's not that big of a difference between us. Six degrees of Kevin Bacon is a thing for a reason. So that's what's been going on here. And the reason that it sort of that was on my mind, outside of the fact that it's just, I think it's a hilarious story about how small the world is. But I found Margot online on Twitter. I can't even remember how it came about, but like uh, I just saw she was a writer. Appalachia. I think she had just moved back to Pittsburgh. I think maybe she had tweeted something about that. And then I started digging into her stuff and I'm like, oh my God, this person writes about Appalachia and she's here in town. Like, I absolutely have to have her on the program uh, because that's sort of what I like to do is to go find people and their stories. And I'm telling you, if you put Appalachia in your bio, I'm going to find you and we're going to have a conversation. Um, and if I'm in Asheville, if I'm in, you know, if I'm in the Appalachia region, at some point we're going to have some connection because that's just the way it is here. So I am excited for you to hear our conversation today. She is delightful and lovely. I appreciate you taking time to stop by the bunker, spend some time with Max and I. 
uh, to listen to my rambling story about my trip to Asheville and the sort of weird serendipitous nature of the world. I hope your day is going well and that you're taking care of yourselves and each other. Hope you are getting vaxxed up. And remember, if you do, even if you've had your shot, wear your masks, stay six feet from people, uh, make sure you're limiting your exposure. We're doing a good job. Things are finally moving in the right direction here. Let's keep that going. But for now, sit back and enjoy my conversation with Margot Orlando Littell. We did. We moved in August. Um, I hadn't lived in Pennsylvania since I was 18. So this is, you know, a long time coming for sure. I was this sort of move that we talked about you know, kind of casually for a long time. Should we move to Pittsburgh, be near my friends and my family? Um, never really thinking realistically about how that was going to happen. And it was just kind of an accumulation of small conversations. And then all of a sudden, I, I, I honestly can't remember what happened, but we were suddenly looking at property and touring houses and buying a house all within the space of about four weeks. And so we are in Pittsburgh now. It is wonderful. It is a small, you know, not small, a, a large silver lining of a crazy year for sure. Yeah. It's weird. You know, I've been thinking about buying for like six months and like, it really is like if you got Zillow open and you're kind of looking around and you sort of start to get a set, like it goes really slow and then it goes really fast. I think the momentum of a move is its own kind of wild beast. I mean, you can talk about it in a casual way, but as soon as you start looking at properties, like you're in it, you're in it, you're a goner. Yeah. And then it like, I remember uh, when I got my first house, I, 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 I got, um, I took a severance from Wired and used that to buy a home. And like, it was just one of those things where like, you're signing all those thousand documents and you just right. keep looking around, like somebody's going to tell me at some point, I am not qualified to like, this is not really a response. I am not responsible enough. And I'm 48 and I still have that feeling. Oh, absolutely. It's, you never feel like you can fulfill the promises you're making on papers. <laughs> never. Yeah. And of course, my realtor, who's wonderful, she's amazing, um, and would literally tell me, like, I'm not even going to let you see that property. Like, I needed a mom to just be like, you, you're insane. You're not looking at that house. She like, we're looking at the house I bought. And she's like, well, you can just cut this door out and make it a French door and like knock it. And I was like, yeah. And then I leave and I'm like, one, I can't do any of that. <laughs> You know, and like, so do you know people that can do it? Because I just spent all of my money on this house. Exactly. <laughs> all those dreams that we could do this, we could do this. The reality of that is very, very different. Yeah. I always see people on Instagram who like do the, you know, like my friends all send me like the home renovation people who just like, they're like, and today we just tore out a wall. And I'm like, my house would just not have a wall if that happened. No, no. <laughs> if there were one big trait I could change about myself, I think it would be, I wish I were handy. I wish I could do those large scale home renovations because it would be so much fun. It would right? just be amazing and, and doable. But un un unfortunately, that is not my path. Here's the worst part for me is I got two uncles that were contractors, but they were so precise. Like they'd let me hang out in their wood shop, but they were like, you're not, you're seven, right? Like you're not going to. And so my dad also has no handiwork because, you know, the uncles would come over and do all the stuff. So literally like our branch of the family is like, uh, yeah, no. And you I need can't a, really learn it to the extent that you would need it. You can't, yeah. I don't know. You really can't learn how to take down and rebuild a wall. I don't know. It would just be a, many years are needed to get to that point. 
Yeah. And you know, I know people do it. I just don't like, I'm doing other stuff and like, I would love to do it and I'd do it once and I would never use that skill again. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's every time I start to take a foreign language on one of the things I'm like, I go to Germany once every five years. Like they all speak English. Like I don't, <laughs> what am I doing? Right. Right. The, the on the ground practicing is not going to get there. <laughs> yeah. So where are you, what part of, are, you're originally from Pittsburgh? I'm originally from Connellsville, which oh, is a town about an hour south of Pittsburgh, okay. sort of between Morgantown and Pittsburgh. Oh, okay. So did you, were you yeah. closer to Morgantown? Um, no, about the same, almost, almost the same, like 45 minutes from Morgantown, 55 minutes to Pittsburgh. So I, right down the middle. I love Morgantown. Yeah. I don't know Morgantown at all, but the, to the extent that we went into a city, we would come into Pittsburgh. Really? Why do you think that was? Um, I don't know. I think because the things that we came to do were like the museums, occasional, you know, theater. Um, but we didn't do that very much. We yeah. Were, you know, it's like a world away when you grow up in a place like that. Yeah. I mean, I'm from a town of 5,000 people. So like going, like we were about 45 minutes outside of Cincinnati. And so like going to the city was like a big deal. It's a big deal. <laughs> it's a big, I think it's the strangest thing for my parents now because they kind of now come to see us and it's, not a big deal anymore. It's just coming in for a visit and then going home. It's not a big production that has to be planned for or tickets purchased or reservations made. It's just part of life now. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Once you get the home there, right? Like part of the reason I go to Germany is my riding partner and best friend lives there. So like, I don't, all I got to do is get off the plane. Like once I'm off the plane, everything else is basically just like me following them around. That's so nice that you have real familiarity there. Yeah, but I mean, it's a little bit like that for your parents. I'm assuming, like, oh shit, like, and if we get tired, we'll just stay in one of your rooms. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> it's it's kind of great. We're all still kind of getting used to it because it hasn't been this way forever. I've never been close enough to my family to see them on a regular basis. Yeah, always been a you know a few times a year, holidays, maybe a week in the summer. Um, so it's a real change, a real change for for all of us. <laughs> yeah, I'll get back to you in a few years and find out if that's a real good change. Right, you can check back in. Yeah. Right now, we're all very happy. Yeah, like COVID, you're like, oh, it's nice to have people around. And then later, it'll be like, god damn, they're here every weekend. Right, right, right. <laughs> I'll send you a note in six yeah. months from now. I think, feel like we're all going to go through this when this is over. Yeah. Like, everybody's going to rush to be like, I want to see everybody. And then, like, six months later, we'll be like, I can't believe this is what I wanted to get back oh, to. Oh, it's so true. I mean, I'm a real homebody by nature a real introvert but i i really am feeling like i've reached my limit of not seeing people and i never thought i would say anything like that so i think <laughs> we'll come out on the other side of this very different yeah so you grow up in this small town you got brothers and sisters i have a sister she's two and a half years younger oh so you're are you the rule follower we're both pretty big rule followers. <laughs> so you're both older sisters. <laughs> we, uh, we are. We are. Um, I'm definitely a little more organized about things. Um, we have, you know, running family joke that I'm, when we go on family trips, I'm the cruise director. You know, I have a spreadsheet with the itinerary. Oh, shit. I, I make all the reservations. I make all the plans. And this summer for our family beach trip, um, I, I was a mess because it was right in the middle. We were selling a house and buying a house. And I was, I was a hot mess. And so my sister took the reins and she planned everything. And we were like, this is great. But it was so strange because she took on that role for like, you know, for the first time. Um, but we're very close. She lives in Bethesda and she's a pianist. Oh, my sister's a pianist. Oh, how interesting. Yeah. My, uh, my sister trained at, uh, at CCM in Cincinnati. She didn't do it professionally, but she went through, I mean, she got her degree in a conservatory. 
That's awesome. Yeah, my sister, um, she performs and does a lot of um, accompanying work, and she also runs a, a piano school, yeah. a music school. Yeah, that's what you do. Yeah, that's what you do. <laughs> yeah. She's all in. It's, it's constant. Her work is constant. So, uh I know this isn't about your sister, but did she do, go to conservatory? Is that what she did? No, she um, got a master's degree from Catholic University. How did she end up in piano? Like, were you guys musical and arty as kids? We were, yeah. We both grew up um, really into music. My mom was a Suzuki piano teacher. Uh, uh. So, <laughs> well, she didn't teach either one of us. I played the violin. I played since I was five. And Jesus, I, you guys did the you guys oh, did yeah. the, the instruments. We did, we did. It was it was hardcore. So we were in lessons from the time we were very young, and then I took lessons and performed all through college mostly. Um, and then at the end of college, it just wasn't. I was very good at it. I, I had a, was a very good violinist, but I was never really passionate about it. It was just something that I did. Yeah. Um, so after college, it kind of fell off, but my sister pursued it as her, as her vocation. So, but we played together. She, she would accompany me. We would put on recitals together. We played a couple of like local events at the Rotary Club, you know, with a whole like sister, sister duo. Yeah. No, I know exactly what that was. Yeah. <laughs> my sister, like she did all like local theater, every high school play. I mean, mm -hmm. from the time she was in high school, like she was the piano player for like all of the stuff around the area. Like, and that's, I mean, for people that don't know, and I know all music is, all music is hard, but like those two instruments, you are not fucking around. You are, I mean, if you really want, my, my sister practiced five, six hours a day. Oh my. Yeah. It was crazy. I told people I grew up with the Tom and Jerry soundtrack. I didn't realize what it was until later, but like, literally I just had like this classic music thing blasting seven right. days a week. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. Um, my, my house was constantly filled with music. We had an upright piano in the entryway of our home, and that's where my mom taught her piano students. And we had a grand piano in the living room of our home, and that's where my sister would practice. And oftentimes, wow. those things would happen simultaneously. And so it was just, a, it was a lot of, uh, a lot of notes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, I don't know if there's a movie called Amadeus and at one point the uh, Amadeus plays this thing and the, the king keeps saying like, there's just too many notes to your piece. <laughs> and, yeah, like, and Amadeus is like, that's not a thing. <laughs> but yeah, it is, uh, it just sort of like, that is a thing that kind of fills the space that you are in. And yeah, it's a, and it was a soundtrack. I mean, my, my kids are both doing Suzuki piano now. And hearing them go through these songs that I grew up listening to constantly, it's very strange. You know, it's a real flashback. Yeah. And so what was your dad doing in all this? Like outside so in my, the yard? <laughs> <laughs> my dad, my dad has a remarkable ability to concentrate. He, he, um, he's a high school or was a high school calculus teacher. And he always has had a thriving um, freelance calligraphy business as well. Oh, fascinating. A calligrapher. And so now that he's retired from teaching, he just has a, he's a busier than ever doing calligraphy work. Um, and he has an Etsy shop and the whole thing. He's very, very tech savvy, very artistic. And he just does his thing. Um, and that's it, pretty much you know my sister, now, my sister now teaches math and i was like if you know like it actually makes a lot of sense that a calculus teacher would end up with a piano player because piano yeah, is that's math. true i mean that's it absolutely is math, true. right like it's all <laughs> physics and math 
right. you, you don't necessarily think that when you're bonking on the keys, but like my sister made the transition to math and she's like, well, all of this makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. You know, this mm-hmm. is a half note quarter. And I'm like, I don't understand any of that stuff. She's like, yeah, yeah. my brain doesn't work that way. But. Yeah. She's like, just trust me. This is the same thing. So, uh, is that are you primarily like are you guys doing like arty stuff in school like what do you like in high school like as you're growing up like yeah we were both um we were both arty um smart arty drama kids doing all the theater it was wonderful I mean it was fantastic and in a small town you don't have a lot of outlets or any outlets for that besides the spring musical at high school yeah it was fun I mean it was just some of my best memories of that time of my life or the high school musicals and how big was the town um Connellsville is very small. It's about 10,000 people. Okay. So we're in the Our same high kind school of school was very small. We went to the Catholic high school. Um, that's where my dad was a teacher. And my class was about 125 kids. Yeah. It was pretty small. Yeah. Um, you know, we were small but mighty. And uh, there was a when I started high school, the marching band, that was its first year to have a marching band. And so it was just this ragtag group of non-instrumentalists trying to put on halftime shows. And it was Kind of a theater of the absurd kind of thing, but um, if the, you played the violin, how are you in the marching band? Oh goodness! Well, I played quote unquote played the clarinet in the marching band, which is <laughs> an instrument I absolutely revile to this day, and um, it was pretty much a bunch of people like me trying to play instruments like the clarinet, and <laughs> it did not always go well. Yeah, I would imagine that the, that sounds like a bad TV show. No, it was like a very, it was a small town short story, you know? <laughs> it really was, it really was. And everyone was so earnest about it. It was oh, 100% like, they were. Like, yes. this was the oh, music yeah. band, right? Like this Absolutely, was, yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> so as you're finishing up high school, like you're in this small place, it sounds like, I mean, if you got parents, that, if you got a parent that's a teacher, you're thinking about college and that's part of the mm-hmm. conversation, I'm assuming, so... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, although in high school, I was already very serious, serious um, about writing. I really didn't know what I wanted to do in college. I didn't know where I wanted to go. Um, My parents were not the sort to put a lot of pressure on. Um, So, I mean, I felt very aimless trying to choose a college. And I wound up in Ohio, actually, at the University of Dayton. Um, Oh, really? where it was it was fine it was it was a lovely school just the right size just far enough away from home um what takes you to the, the what why, what takes you to the the Dayton Flyers you know thinking back now I don't remember um <laughs> definitely <laughs> just you know a handful of of good liberal 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 arts schools that um I didn't want to go somewhere very small I didn't want to go somewhere too big it was just you know that the strange calculations you make as an 18 year old trying to shape the rest of your life are kind of horrifying now um and completely irrelevant and random but I had a good I had a good four years and really got into writing while I was there so it all worked out I mean it's interesting so I grew up like I grew up probably 35 40 minutes from Dayton um uh we were well we were about equidistant between like Columbus and Cincinnati and Dayton is you know right over there but like, I'm, we're about the same age. I think we're in the neighborhood of the same age. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm 44. Like, yeah, at that time, like Dayton was sort of in the middle of being a burnout town. Like it, it was like it was at the beginning of this like, you know, Rust Belty kind of that area with Middletown. Like all those areas were really mm-hmm. not inviting. Did, did they no, I mean, your go, town. No, like going into downtown Dayton was not something. No. That, at all but i know that has changed a lot yeah it's really different 
I've never been one to go back for reunions or visits or anything like that. Um, but I know it is very, very different now because I have friends who stayed or who moved back and, uh, which is great. I love hearing about revitalizing towns and, um, it's exciting, exciting for the kids who go to the college now. It's just an odd choice to pick like, Hey, I want to go to this dying Rust Belt town, leave my small town. You know, you know, it wasn't part of what I was thinking. It wasn't, I wasn't thinking about the place. I actually wanted to go to New York. And that was the one thing my parents said, you cannot go to school in New York city. You can't really? go to, can't go to your undergraduate in New York City. And so I didn't, that was kind of off the table. <laughs> Why? Um, I don't know. Too big, too scary. So they I, just said, don't do it. And you were like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. We were totally different. I'd have, if my yeah. parents would have said that, I'm like, I'm going to New York right now. I know. I know. It's uh, it, a, <laughs> <laughs> I told you a rule follower. Yeah. So did they have any like say in Dayton or like what? No. Would you, it was just like you were just looking at some stuff and you were like, okay, like here's the sort yeah. of geographic area I'm going to stay in. And no, yeah. And it was, it was, um, I got into some really good schools and just, I, I, like I said, I don't remember the, the actual calculus. I don't remember making a list of yes and no. I don't remember a pro and con. I just remember making a decision. So when you were applying to school, like, were you looking at stuff? Like, like, hey, I'm going to be a writer, or hey, I want to do this music. Thing. No, I was undeclared. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I said I had no idea, but truly deep down, I knew I wanted to major in English. But it took about, you know, a, a semester, maybe a semester and a half to finally declare. Um, but you weren't looking at colleges with that in mind? or maybe No, you were not at all. Knowing it? No, I, I really wasn't. I was not. I was a very, a very motivated, good student. But looking back on it now, I was really, I did not have a lot of um, definition to my sure. ambition. You know, I knew I wanted yeah. to do something. Yeah. I knew I was smart. I had good grades. I didn't know what it was. And so yeah. it took a while to get around to it. Um, I think that's some small town stuff, right? Like, you know, my yeah, family maybe. doesn't have a long tradition in college. And like, I've told folks like, uh, my dad filled out part of my application for college. Like I was always smart, but like, and I knew I wanted to do something like you said, but it wasn't like, I was like, well, here's what people do. Right. Where right. I'm from, people mostly stayed there. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? 
Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Right, right, right. No, absolutely. hundred percent. And I, I think it's so different now with the focus is on college. So such an early yeah, age, I feel crazy. like kids are going to start thinking about it by the time they're finishing middle school. Um, and even if I don't want to pressure them, I feel like inevitably it's going to be these conversations that I never had as a sixth grader, as yeah. an eighth grader. It's just, it's a very different, a different world right now. Yeah. It's a little crazy to me. Like as someone who taught college, like college to me like there's like there's a few reasons to go you know like getting out of your town like general education like it's always good just to get educated but like if you want a career like when I went to graduate school I was only going to go to a graduate school that got me into my career like I didn't want to just go to any graduate school right like so but that was not even part of any conversation that I ever had like I just had to come to that shit on my own in like my mid-20s when I was like I'm not going anywhere how does how does one do this Right, right, right. I think that focus on practicality is something that I feel so strongly and is going to be something that I, you know, that I guide my children toward. Not that they have to necessarily go to, you know, a trade school, but if, but with an eye on what are you going to do? Yeah. And you know, a fiction writer, it's really ironic for me to be saying that that's the question I want to be asking my children, but it's true. You know, yeah. what are you going to do? How are you going to make it work? Yeah. It, it, one of the things on this show is that nobody knows how to be a writer, right? Like everybody who's a writer wanted to be a writer because it's a terrible thing to do. It's awful. There's nothing fun right, about this gig. Yeah. No, nothing. And there's also not a path. Like if you want to be a doctor or a lawyer, like it's not easy, but like go to med school, blah, 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 take your boards. Now you're certified. Now you're a thing. At no point is somebody like you're a writer. Right. Like, right. You're your benchmarks. It's you, it's only the benchmarks you create for yourself. And that can be very haphazard. Yeah. And they're not even, that's not even a guarantee that it'll be successful. Right. It's like, Hey, I published Absolutely. a book. Okay. Like you're right. a writer, but now what? <laughs> right. Absolutely. It's, it's, if you Which think about really, it in those terms, it's really hard to define success. <laughs> <laughs> it's the gallows humor of being a writer. It's why I it always is, tell young writers, I'm like, it's like piano or violin. If you're good at it, but you're not passionate about it, this thing will kick you in the face the rest That's of your right. life. I mean, tenacity is 80% of any kind of writing success, I think. Yeah. And you got to love it. Like, it has to be a thing that you really, truly like, 
in the whole process, right? Like it's not just the first draft. That's the easy part. The first draft is the easiest part of the writing process. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's this middle, the middle part is the worst. That's what yeah. I think now with this work in progress. And it is just every day is a fresh hell, a hellscape of, you know, plot threads that aren't carried through and characters who aren't doing things that they should be doing. It is, it's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. We will not delve into that because everybody will end up drinking and it's only 11. That's right. Exactly we're doing right. This. Exactly. We can talk about the, the good parts. Yeah. I, well, I, that'll be the shortest fucking interview I've ever done. In my life. It's the day it's published before anybody says anything about it is the best part. So true. So true. You get eight seconds of like, hooray. Actually, it may even be the day you just send it off and you can't do anything anymore. Yeah. Right. Like that, like that may be the best thing. It's like, Okay, nobody can say it's bad, it's done, I can work on something new. I think that is very true. <laughs> yeah, it's awful. So you go to Dayton and you declare mm -hmm. English eventually mm -hmm. at some point. You don't know why you're in Dayton. You haven't quite figured out English. So what is right. it that you think you're going to do once you declare? Like, what do you want to do with it? Or do you just think, I love words? I thought I love words. I love reading. I love books. Um and I was, I really loved doing literary analysis. So I just assumed my path was going to be, I don't know, teaching of some kind, um, getting, definitely getting a graduate degree. Um, but as I went through, I became more serious about my fiction writing, um, ended up publishing a few short stories while I was in college and decided I wanted to get my MFA. Oh. But that was ultimately the path that I went down. You're one of those people. You're one I, of my MFAs. Yes. Oh, I have a lot of thoughts about that too. Um, I went to, I, I, and that's what got me to New York finally. So I got my MFA from Columbia. Did you go right after? I did right after. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So that's that is so. That's an so. What made you go right after? So I had nothing else planned. <laughs> I mean, the, I know I, I speak frankly. There was nothing else I was going to. <laughs> I couldn't imagine anything else to do. So yeah. it's a failure of imagination mixed with a great dose of work that I got into a wonderful program and was able to just kind of carry on. Yeah, because Columbia is the real deal. Yeah, it was it was a, a real um it was a real stroke of luck in my life to get in there. One or two years. It was a two well, it was a two-year program, yeah. but it ended up stretching out <laughs> an extra year because I got a teaching assistantship to teach undergraduate comp while I was there. And so then my course load decreased while I was teaching. So I extended the program by a year. That's which, actually probably really good. It was frankly the best thing yeah. that I got out of my MFA was my teaching experience because that sort of propelled me toward other things I could do. Um, so I came out of the program with teaching experience. I came out of the program with, you know, really in-depth comp knowledge. And so I was able to get an editing position um, based on my actual real world experience, which thankfully I was able to get while I was there. Yeah. It you know it, I went to Berkeley for graduate school for journalism and it was two years and you know Columbia was one that is you know competes with them and it was one year and I've told folks like I don't know how you can do a high level graduate program in a year unless you come in already accomplished in some way because that first semester of any high level graduate program is just like a tsunami of shit hitting you where you're like uh, what am I doing here. I don't know if the MFA is the same way, but no, it really, it is. And you're expected to produce a lot of pages on a regular basis. You're also supposed to be reading, you know, multiple books a week. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's no joke. The amount of work that's involved. 
And, you know, that's aside from moving to a new place, navigating a new city, meeting new people. So all the, uh, the life finances, if you're from too, a small right? place, like right? not like you were yeah. rich. Right. You have to do some work along with all that. Um, yeah. So that was, but you know, that was really the turning point that set me on the path for the rest of my life because then I kind of never left New York until, until now, of course. Um, but that was, you know, that was a turning point that was like opening up the next stage of my life for sure. Well, and that's, you know, what I tell people when they go to graduate school, it's either because if you're in a regional university and like your job is paying for it and that's part of, you know, like that's part of the sort of job trajectory and that's what the university does do that. Or you go to one of these places that can like let you skip some levels and what it's doing while also teaching you how this industry that you're in works because yeah right and it's a definitely at that point well I was still very very young but I yeah. had to be more of a deliberate choice like where I was going to school was probably going to be where I ended up getting a job yeah I was more deliberate about where I applied and where I wanted to be it wasn't just a haphazard you know out of a hat basically it was it was definitely more calculated like I knew where I wanted to end up and that was a step that I had to take to get there yeah you didn't stop at Kenyon on the way to New York City you just (laughs) went the whole way so uh what do you, what's the, what's the focus when you're there? Or is that like a comprehensive degree? Like, are you there for fiction or is it? Yeah, like you a- have to declare your genre. So I was a fiction writer. Um, I went in still writing short stories, but I shifted very care, very quickly to trying to put together a novel. Yeah. Um, but the Why? first semester, well, my first semester, I was still writing short stories. Um, and actually one of the short stories that I wrote for my very first workshop in that class was the seed of the idea I actually expanded into what became my first novel. So there was, you know, there was material, there were ideas being generated there. Um, I just wanted to write a novel and I, you know, you are always being told that novels sell more short stories, the whole, that whole rigmarole. So um, I tried to write a novel and ultimately my thesis was three novellas, a collection of novellas. Wow. Wow. That's pretty good. Which is a really great form to be writing. I love novellas. Um, yeah, and it was three that I was really happy with, so it it worked out. You know, I I created something that I was proud of at the end. And what became is that is that what became the novel, or or did those? Yeah, so the short story became one of the novellas. Gotcha. And the novella years later became the full length novel. That was my first novel. So gotcha. A funny long path of these characters that were like simmering for a long time. I will say of all the I've interviewed, you know, close to 150, 175 people on the show. I don't know if I've ever talked to anybody who had something from like their first semester become the thing. Right. Because that's usually your practice. That's usually the thing that ends up disappearing. I mean, when I say it became, I mean, only the very the the shadows of it were there. The inklings of it were there. Um, But still, you can draw a line. to it. Yes, I can definitely draw a line to it. And a lot of people can't. No, no. Um, And that's, you know, I sort of joke with people and I think that the, I think the industry jokes too, is that like, it takes a whole life to write your first book, but really it takes about 20 years for that first one. And like, so to be able to trace, not that it took you that long, but to be able to trace back and go, oh, well, this is sort of the moment when that thing first jumped into my head. Yeah. And you know, it's, I don't know if it's part of my character to be able to trace things like that, but I've always been an avid journaler and I, a chronicler of things. And so I am often able to go back through notebooks and identify a line or a phrase or a note. I'm like, that's it. That was the spark that got this new long work 
um, going, which is kind of a fun, you know, excavation if you are prone to that kind of thing. Yeah. Also fascinating. That you're like, that. But it's also fascinating that you're like, I don't know why I went to Dayton. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I'm both super deliberate <laughs> and also completely haphazard. You're right, Brad. That is, <laughs> I hold multitudes. Yeah. <laughs> we talk about Whitman all the time on this program. Uh, uh, so yeah, funny. no, it's funny. This is one of the things that I love most about these interviews is talking to folks because there are always these things. It's like, I don't do any of this stuff. And at the end, I'm like, well, here's a line. And they're like, holy shit, there's a line. And I'm like, yeah, or there's, well, I'm very deliberate except for this other thing that right. i'm not it's a right? completely large part of my life i was not deliberate about at all but clearly it's the things that like you've somewhere made decisions about what's important and what's not and like you sort of said well right. you know this is not important for whatever reason i don't know why but i'm just this right. is not a thing i need to track right but i also think it definitely is a function of um you know growing up and getting older where the choices you make are hugely important. That is like a very simple thing, but something you don't realize. I don't think when you're 18, at least I didn't when I was 18. Yeah. Um, and now I know if I move to a house in Pittsburgh, you know, that is a deliberate choice. <laughs> Choosing not to make this move would have also been a deliberate choice. Um, and that would have sort of set us on the path to staying where we were living, which was a house in New Jersey, just outside New York, which was wonderful. That was one life. Um, yeah. Then it was great. We had lots of friends. We loved going into the city. It was, but you know, we made a choice. Is that going to be the forever life? And it wasn't. And uh, so we are, I've gotten like super deliberate now. <laughs> well, I also think some <laughs> of that's- Super calculating. It's, it's also a function, I think, of, and I don't know, it's not directly class, but like, you know, I come from a place where like people didn't leave and they didn't go to college. And so there wasn't this institutional thinking of like, well- Here's a you grew up around a bunch of successful writers and Brad, they're telling you at 16, like the choices you make are going to determine if you get into this literati or not. Right. Like it just wasn't even a thing until I got older. If I had kids now and they were artistic, I'd be like, well, we got to think about mm -hmm. how we can get you into this world as quickly as we can, because that really is. It's what Columbia did to you. It's what Berkeley did to me. Like it came to us a little bit later. And that was when you begin to realize like, oh shit, this is important, right? Like Columbia is important, not only for the context, but the place. Right. And that because you end up staying there. Yeah, exactly. Ish. Exactly. You take a little detour for a while. Yeah. I did. I took a little detour. I was in New York for a long time, about nine years. And then I moved um, to Spain for about a year and a half with my then boyfriend who was doing an MF an MBA, very different MBA. Yeah. Barcelona. <laughs> and uh, so I went with him. I had had an editing job in New York, which I loved. I had this wonderful little apartment in Park Slope, which I broke my lease on. And I just kind of jumped ship and went to Spain, which was wonderful. It was like the study abroad experience I never got. Um, and I freelanced while I was there. I was lucky enough to get a lot of projects from my um, the employer that I had left. And so I was able to, you know, do a lot of traveling while we were there and a lot of writing. Um, and so, that was great. So that was amazing. So for the, you graduate college and you get an editing job in New York I graduated City? graduate school. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yes, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I got an editing job um, at an educational publishing house, an imprint of Barnes & Noble, and it was great. I loved it. I love editing. I'm a, I love line editing, love grammar, love copy editing. I love the whole thing. It was great. Ugh. Ugh. I know. Not, it's not for everybody. So. <laughs> I just got certified as a copy editor in Chicago and like, I can do it, but it is definitely, 
I always tell people, like, I'm an idea guy. I need those people to come in after. And, like, none yeah, of these verbs yeah. are in the same thing. Oh, it's, I find it so satisfying. Untangling a tangled sentence, it's, <laughs> it's great. So what do you do there? Like, what's the gig? Like, what are you editing? Well, when I was there, I was editing um, study guides to literature, to gotcha. films and short stories and novels. And, oh, I don't know. What else did I edit while I was there? I edited some college prep guides, some test prep stuff, um, a little bit of everything. But the study guys was the most fun because that was like, you know, you get to use your literature love and, you know, analyze things. It was fun. It was when fun. you say edited, so somebody else was writing them and Someone then- Someone else was writing them and I was editing them. And then when I moved to Spain, I wrote a bunch of them on a freelance basis. So that must've been kind of nice because it doesn't sound like a job that you take home with you. Like, cause I'm assuming you're no. writing- as well. That's right. Yeah, I was. I was. Um, however, I do find it hard to be an editor and a writer at the same time because there's yes. much words my brain can hold. Um, so I didn't do too much writing during the years I was an editor, but um, but it wasn't a job to take home. It was, you know, I left it at the office. I don't know if you can even do that anymore with work, but um, back then I could. But when I moved to Spain, then I did a lot of writing while I was there. So you had like eight or nine years yeah. where you weren't writing. Um, a lot. It was, yeah, it, there was there was a there was a big gap in writing between my MFA and the next the next in Spain. Mm -hmm. Do yeah. you think that was some of the reason that you were like, yes, I will do this? Um, I don't I don't know. Maybe I mean there's another like there's no line. <laughs> there's no line. It was always I think it was always there waiting for me. But I had to have a life first. I had to have a job. I had to sort of build things. Um, and then once I had built some things and had, you know, had a job that I was good at and sort of established that piece, moved around a little bit, established that piece, I was able to come back to it and sort of pick it up. And the, the novel that I wrote while I was living abroad was um, something I was really excited about. And I worked on that for a long time. And it ended up not, I have still haven't found a home for that one, but in trying to find a home for that one, I met an agent who encouraged me to expand a novella into a novel and that sort of, you know, so all these little, you can see the stepping stones. Yeah. Um, there's not one grand realization. It's just little bit by little bit. Here we are back to the story. It's going to take a different shape. It, I know that, like, I left magazine writing because I, at, the, at, at the end, I had sort of risen up through the ranks and was running a department, and all I did was either sit in budget meetings or work with top-line editors who were assigning stuff, and, and I ran the online version, so, like, we're dealing with all this stuff, and, like, I never wrote a word. I didn't write a word forever because my job was to make sure other people could write and to build and make sure that, like, the business was in shape. So mm -hmm. when I hear, like, nine years, I'm like, oh, yeah, that was about my trajectory, like, in that you sort of build that whatever career up, and then you're like, wait a minute, have I taken the wrong fork in this road? Yeah, yeah and I think there's, like, a rebalancing that has to happen. Yeah, um, that's a good way to put it. What's interesting is that once I did begin writing in earnest again, the time I had to do that constricted hugely because I was trying to, you know, do things that earned money at the yeah. same time. <laughs> then I was trying to do, I was having a baby at the same time. And then I had no time. But the strange thing is, I don't know if this will resonate with you or other people, but, you know, the less time I had, the more my writing time constricted, 
the more productive I was because I suddenly realized that if I didn't make the time to do it, I was never going to do it. And so then voila, it's sort of like that clicked into place and suddenly I'm writing every day, even if it's for an hour during the infant's nap time, uh, it was getting done in a way that it kind of hadn't before. So yeah, this is a a story that several, you know, I've had several moms on the program and like, I've heard like, Oh, I would sit in the, minivan while they were at practice and waiting to pick them up and I would write for 45 minutes every day like oh and it's just like and they said the same thing like when there was a limited amount of time then you're really making a choice you that is exactly what I was about to say it is a deliberate choice you either do it or you don't yeah you go to target during the two hours of preschool or you go home and you write some pages you know it's really I found it easy to make that choice once I was forced to do it and I'm, I'm, you know, that's the only way anything that I've accomplished in the past <laughs> eight years has gotten done Yeah, by seizing those bits and pieces of time. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's like everybody talking here in the pandemic about like, well, everybody has time. They're clearly going to write. And I'm like, you've never read the paradox of choice. Oh, you can do anything you want. Nobody's writing. Right. <laughs> That's right. Because there's too much noise in my, in the world. I mean, I, I know you can't have a perfectly peaceful world all the time and that only those conditions allow writing, but you know, I would, during the early pandemic, I was spending hours a day trying to procure groceries for my family. And I, you know, that had the Trump trying to write. So there, there are choices there too. Yeah. (laughs) Not it's, uh, maybe I don't know. I, I can't think of a situation where the pandemic would have been completely conducive to writing. I I don't I, under yeah. But it's, maybe we'll hear maybe we'll hear these stories. You know, in a few years, novels will come out of this time that were written during this time. But that's I'm sure be me. But there are not. I don't know writers. And again, I've talked to a bunch of them during this time. Like I, nobody I know has said like, "What a blessing! What a <laughs> godsend! All this time at home." Right, right. <laughs> like when people say, when I hear um, parents say like, oh, well, I had this life and if I wanted to do what I wanted to do, I had an hour a day and I had to make that choice. You literally are given the gift of making a choice, right? And saying, who am I? Without really ever asking that question, but like, is this the thing that I want? Um, right, right, and it's it's funny because I would say, you know, a writer is what I would define myself as. And that is probably the single thing if I do the least, um, you know, as far as child rearing and parenting and dinners and overseeing homework and all of that. So this is a, the time of the day that I'm writing, actively writing is the, is the least amount of time, but it's sure. also the most rewarding and the richest. And that's when I get to sort of be the person that I am supposed to be yeah. and I feel like I am. And I don't, without that, you know, there's, that would be a big loss, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the youth part, right? Everything else is in service of other things or people or like group and shared lives. But like the writing thing is there's nobody, you know, if you're like every other writer I know, you're like, no, kids, you don't get to read this. You know, like, I don't, I don't care what you think about it. Right? Right, right. That'll be, that's, that day is coming. I don't know what happened, but. <laughs> like mommy's doing this so yeah, you know right. you can see it when everybody else sees it that's when you can see it so how long are you in spain we were um andrew was there about two years i was there for about a little over a year with him um and then i and then we came back and moved to california for a few years oh what part um we were in sacramento so not oh god yes i yeah <laughs> <laughs> we absolutely 
hated living in Sacramento. That's the appropriate response to Sacramento. Yes. And I mean, I feel kind of bad for Sacramento because wherever you live after Barcelona is kind of going to be your rebound, unless yeah. you're going to like back to New York or to another big city. It was our rebound. It was terrible. We did have some wonderful friends who were out there and um, we the did- took you to Sacramento. I'm sorry. What took you to Sacramento? <laughs> My husband's first job out of his MBA program was um, he wanted, he was an editor. That's how we met. And he wanted to get an MBA to move into the business side of publishing. And so his first job post MBA was doing business development work for a small imprint of Random House, which was in a suburb of Sacramento. Holy shit. You were totally in a suburb random. of Sacramento. We sure were. This was not, this was, I think, 2000. <sighs> 17 it was not a great time to be trying to find work so we felt really lucky that he had been able to find this job and it was great for him he loved it um we loved going around in california we loved tahoe and san francisco yeah. and the exploring that we went we loved reno um we you know, reno's weird we loved we actually got married in reno we had a sort of a secret <laughs> pay for the papers wedding because i had no health insurance and he did so um we have a fond place in our hearts for reno. but um it was a limited time we knew it was a limit he had a limited yeah time there Good. The, after three years we hightailed it back to new york so three years is a long time in sack it was a long time yes we had a baby <laughs> out there like we had life stuff happen out there but it was a. Uh, it was we knew we were always always gonna leave so yeah, it's, my, it's, <laughs> people don't know. I'm not. I've talked about this, but when I went to graduate school, my best friend was from Sacramento. So like, oh, uh, oh. we bonded over both. Like he was a little white trash, and I was a little redneck, and we were like, <laughs> oh yeah, okay. I sort of see the. I get it. Uh, you know, and it was fine when we were out there. This was like I said. This was like 2008, 2017, 2018, and Sacramento was trying so hard to become better and to become yeah. sort of more than it was. Um, and I, I, I have no doubt it has become a lovely place to live now, but back then it was just, it was just difficult. Yeah. I was actually hired for a while as a paid blogger back when you could do that sort of thing, um, for this website where I was basically hired to write about why I hated living in Sacramento. <laughs> so I had all these strange little things that I would come up with. Um, but it was just a, it was too, uh, Temperature was not right. It was not, it just yeah, wasn't yeah. anything that we wanted, except its location was pretty great for exploring. Yeah. And I mean, it is like, if you want to get up to like into Bend and, you know, into Washington, like you can get to those places relatively, yeah, you know, you're near the Pacific yeah. Northwest, but like that town is not the Pacific Northwest. No, 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 yeah. no. Uh, well, now I've lost everybody in Sacramento, but that's okay. I know. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm no, sure no. it's a beautiful place. Look, I am always <laughs> fine. I'm always fine slagging on sacramento because oh. because like my friends like again from graduate school they were always like yeah we're never going back i know i know, I know. and of course all of them went back well it was like a, it was a pit stop we knew it was a pit stop on our way back to new york we always yeah. get back to new york and we did it took so now in between all this you get your first book published right in I, no i was back in new york when i got my first book published so when do you guys come back from spain what year we is that? came back from spain in 2000 17 okay um we were in california i was writing a lot um we had our baby and then we moved back to new york and so it was um you know right around it was but you had the one novel done you had you had expanded the novel the novel i'm sorry i am getting so confused with my dates it wasn't 2000 
17. It was 2007. Okay, well, this makes more sense to me. I'm yes. like, yeah, I can see that it is, not, it is not computing. It is not computing. It's 2007. We moved back from gotcha. Spain. So you're there for a few this, years. And correct. Then you get to New York. Correct. Gotcha. Got to New York, had another kid, and that's when... And that's when it happened. That's when I met the agent who I had pitched my novel to, and she actually said, let me see the novellas instead. And... Um, encouraged me to change the novella into a novel, which I did, and which a journey I'm sure a lot of people can relate to is it was shopped all around big houses and didn't find a home. And then my agent, who was very young, left the industry. So I had this little orphaned novel that no one will take on because you don't want to reshop a novel that's been shopped already. Um, So I sort of, you know, didn't know what to do. I had this novel that I thought was very good. Yeah but wasn't sure what to do. So I began submitting myself to small presses and to some contests that, you know, offered publication as the prize and I won one. So it was just a very, very fortunate series of events that allowed that publication to happen. It was really exciting. That was 2016. Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, see, so I, makes sense, right? I understood your timeline better than you do. And I do famously do no research and I'm like, this does not feel like oh my goodness. the right time. You know, I, I just realized last night in my daily diary, I had been writing 2020 every single day. Yeah. this year. So I still, you know, it's, I'll blame it on the COVID. What was the press? What was the small press? It was press? the University of New Orleans press. You went out. Cool. Um, which was great. Um, they did such a great job with it and they offer this contest every year. It was, I actually was the winner of the first contest, the inaugural contest. Nice. Um, yeah. And they did a great job with it. It was really exciting and it got my book into the world. So it was pretty amazing. So I was lucky that they recognized, you know, my quiet literary novel set in Southwestern Pennsylvania was a worthy story to tell. Um, I don't know if it, I know it doesn't have the commercialization that a bigger house would have required. So, you know, a small press was the right house for that book. And then they were also my second novel, which was wonderful as well. Also, you know, focusing on a very small part of the world, um, not necessarily a big commercial blockbuster story, but they see the value in those stories. Um, And so I'm able able to tell it again, another one, which was- So they're publishing the second one. It came out in May. Yeah, oh, they published a second one. They published a second one as well. Mm-hmm. So you don't have an agent. I don't. No. Yeah, and this is the Not other yet. thing, right? This right. is the other thing about those small and mid-sized presses is that mm-hmm. very oftentimes you're working directly with. Mm-hmm. Did, did, did you get editorial work from them, or, or I did a lot. Yes. Yeah. So like you get all the benefit of that relationship. Absolutely. Not that I mean, obviously having an agent's nice for lots of different reasons, and you know, movies and all that kind of stuff, but. If you've decided or that you just find your niche is not in the business of writing, like I tell every, I don't, did they cover that in your MFA? Like, Hey, here's the, like, here's the <laughs> they should. They right. should. I mean, this is one of the things that drives me crazy. I'm like, I, like every writer has had to discover this thing by themselves after they've written something. And they're like, wait a minute. <laughs> right now. what? Yeah. It's the most insane business practice of all time. It's like, go spend a year or your whole life writing this book, and then try to figure out how this even gets published. Right, right. <laughs> and there's 50 ways that that can happen. And, and it's probably not going to work because your first novel is never really going to get published. You, know, you have to write something else on top of that. To- right. Or you've rewritten it five times. Right, right, right. And it's a totally different book by the end. 
Exactly. Yeah, it's this is the craziest shit. This is my favorite part of the interviews is always finding out. And then the first book came out. Like, how? Like, I don't even know. I know. I know. It's like... <laughs> That's <laughs> my favorite part too. When I hear people's publication journeys, um, everyone has a, a slightly different tale, and there's always, you know, twists in the road that you you don't know about when you start out. Yeah, and when this gets back to early on, when I was like, if you don't come from a place where they get you involved in that early on, it really is a mystery. Um, I think maybe less so today because there's more writers and outlets where people are writing about like, hey who your agent is, is really important. Like, right, right, right. You know, and, and there's so much there. more community online. You can just, you know, finding out opportunities yeah. that you couldn't years ago. Yeah. So you, the first book comes out. The second book just came out. You're one of the pandemic people. Correct, and, yes. And so now what? Like Now, well, <laughs> you know, it's funny because I don't write a lot of new work and when a new book is coming out, because there's so much marketing writing to be doing at the time, blog posts and guest posts and essays and articles. Um, so I'm have come down from that now for several months. And so I'm, you know, working on something new. I yeah. was able to write during the lockdown a little bit. Um, and so I'm, I have a work in progress. It has a draft. The fun part's done. Wow. And really? You got a whole draft done. I do. I do. Wow. It's, you know, a lot of changes. Happen. Sure, sure, sure. It's sure. currently a hellscape, but it's there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I printed yeah. it all out and divided it into chapters. And it's, I mean, none of those chapters, some of them are going to be cut and so on. But yeah, so that's where I am right now, working on something else. Um you know, that's, that's the way forward. I think just it doesn't, uh, new Orleans still want that. Like, are they, I don't know. I, I mean, it's in no, sh I haven't even had, so you haven't even talked to him publishing it yet. No, 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 no. This is still very private except for sharing it with all of your listeners. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't ever ask like what it's about because right. I know whatever right, right, it is about right. today is not what it'll be about when yeah. it comes out. It's, it's a, it's a baby right now. It's yeah. not, it's not ready to be to enter the world at all. And who knows, maybe it won't be, maybe it will be, but. But it's still amazing that you got a draft in the. Yeah. I'm so hopeful. when you start, how do you start? Like, do you start with a character? Do you start with a plot? Does it change every time? Um, I definitely start with character. Um, my work is primarily character, mostly character driven. And I think about where I want to live basically for the next few years. Um, because that's when you create the world that you're writing in every day, that's the place you're returning to. Yeah. I had to think very deliberately about where I, where I wanted to live in my mind. Because, um, <laughs> you know, it's, so that, that's where I start. I start with a place, I start with a character, and their story just sort of comes together. And it's weird, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's, it's a mysterious process. <laughs> it's a definitely a strange feeling. It's a, and letting it go is both hard and celebratory. Um, so, you know, right now it's just shaping this world and moving through it, figuring out who's going to do what. And, um, you know, I get to know these characters really well and I feel like I'm still kind of getting to know them. I'm not, yeah, yeah. you know, I'm not, I'm not too cozy with them yet, but we'll get there. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's the fun part about the first draft is that it is, they are not finished yeah, product yet. So yeah, that's right. That's um, right. And somebody's going to read that and go, Oh no. Like I get, well, this is your third one. So it's probably less likely that they'll be like, None of that's the story. This is the I story. I am really hoping I can avoid that. Because <laughs> that has been my process with the others, right? And then I'll realize, actually, that's not the story at all. And then large-scale deletions. Yeah. So, 
I hope to become more efficient this time, but we'll see. Whenever I work with like magazine writers or, or people, I'm always like, it's the thing you don't want to say that's the story. Mm-hmm. So if you're like, I banged out 10,000 words, I'm like, probably that's the not important. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. It's the thing you have to sit with and you're like, what does this feeling, what is this? Yeah. Well, you know, what makes this book really interesting to me, not the story component, but, um, you know, so my previous two novels are set in southwestern Pennsylvania, and this one will be set in the area as well, the same area. Um, but this is the first one I've written living where I'm writing about. Oh, interesting. Other ones have been written or drafted in New York, in California, in New Jersey. Um, and this is the first one. So these, you know, this was drafted while I was living in New Jersey, but most, the bulk, the main, the meaty work is going to be done. Here. yeah. And so I don't know how that's going to change things. And it's kind of interesting to me as a writer, just from a craft perspective, how is it going to be writing when I'm immersed in it instead of looking on at it from a distance? Because yeah. it's the first time I've written about this part of the world being anything more than an observer. That's so interesting. It's, it, it is interesting. It, it, and you, know, at, you know, I've always approached my characters and my stories with a, with a great empathy, um, even if our politics probably don't align, I look at them with, you know, they're my characters, they're my creations. I look at them with some degree of understanding. Now it's going to be, I think, being here is very different. It's going to be a different, I don't know, I think if I'm going to have a relationship with my characters in a different way and we're yeah. in a different way. And I think it's going to shape the story. Um, probably it'll be different from what I set out to write and that's okay. I mean, if it's not, I feel like you've done something wrong. I yeah, feel like yeah, if you I nail so. the first draft, that right. whatever it right. is is not right. very right. good. Yeah, <laughs> and it's the fact that I'm doing now subsequent drafts from this space is going to be very interesting. Yeah. So, you know, well, to be to be decided. So uh, the book is The Distance from Four Points, right? Mm-hmm. That's the one that just came out. Yep. Available now. That's right. Um, and this other book will be available at some point in the future. We'll worry about future. that when that comes Down up. the road, yes. <laughs> it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you so much. I, I think I tracked you down. I think you tweeted something about being in Pittsburgh or Appalachia yes. or something. And I was like, oh, I need you to the show. <laughs> yeah, so I'm really happy to have the chance to talk to you. Maybe we can even meet in person sometime. Yeah, once everybody's all, all backed up. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it was, thank you. It was great to talk to you. You have a good day and uh, we'll talk soon. Okay, bye-bye. That was Margot Orlando Littell, the author of The Distance from Four Point. Love having Appalachians on the show. We're continuing with the Pittsburgh theme, as you know. Before we get out of here, just a couple reminders. If you like what you heard, do us those two favors I talked about at the top of the show. For those of you who didn't skip over that part. Tell your friends about us and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. While you're at it, don't forget to check out the other programs on the Solid Listen Podcast Network including the flagship Mother May I Sleep With podcast with host and our solid listen podcast queen, Molly MacLear. We also have video podcasts coming out on the Solid Listen Network YouTube channel, and you can catch the audio versions right here or wherever you're listening to podcasts. Those come out typically on Mondays and Fridays. They're a little sporadic, but if you're signed up, you'll never miss one. And the jam, as you know, is out every Wednesday. So make sure you are subscribed. And remember, you can always catch us on Twitter 
and Instagram at the Writers Jam. Until the next time, I will see you around the internet. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.